Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. Thanks for joining us again for a new episode. We took a few weeks break to reach out to some new guests, and so I think we can go as so far as declaring this next series of episodes as season two of Pipeline Conversations. Today, I'm extremely excited to present this conversation I had with Ben Wilson, who works over at Databricks and who has also just released a new book called Machine Learning Engineering in Action. It's a jam-packed guide to all the lessons that Ben has learned over his years working to help companies get models out into the world and run them in production. I was really lucky to get to talk to Ben about his new book and also about the mental models that he thinks are useful to bring to bear on this complicated problem that many of us are working on. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did recording it. And firstly, I guess I should say thank you for writing this book. I definitely haven't finished it yet. It arrived in the mail a few weeks back. And yeah, not only is it like <laughs> a dense, thick file, there's clearly a lot of hard-won wisdom and lessons and things to learn from in there. And yeah, I'm taking it very slowly and just trying to like get as much out of it from the first reading as possible. Yeah, thanks. It's it's voluminous, definitely. Um, what's funny is that if the publisher had not requested that I trim it up a bit, uh, that book would have been more than twice as long as it actually is. Oh, wow. uh, entire chapters were removed because nobody's going to buy it, a 1,400-page tech book uh, unless it's the Bible of a particular tech stack, which this is not. Right. So uh, I like their decision. I think that we trimmed a bunch off. It's still fairly dense. And yeah, it, it's not something that you do uh, a quick weekend weekend read or read a read in an evening. Um, sure. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that you bring up the the hard learned lessons. I think that defines my career in tech. Is it's just one screw up after another. Uh, it can continues to this day. I mean, it, that's how I learn uh, is by trying to figure out what the official way of doing something is. And then as everything that we do in data science and ML, uh, you can't ever really take a demo from like API docs and copy that, paste it into code and have your data just magically work with that. There's always some nuance and creativity that you have to do. And in the process of that, I learned a lot of lessons about uh, things that I messed up like royally messed up uh, and had to rework from scratch or just created massive headaches for me or my team or a company in general. And I figured, why not try to capture as much of that hard-earned lessons as I could and and write a book about it? Maybe that's a kind of a good place to start for those of you who don't know who you are. Like, maybe you could just talk a little bit about kind of your background in thinking about and working on these problems and how we ended up here, where, you, where you've written this book with these hard-won lessons. Yeah, my background's a little weird. Uh, for anybody who works in the software space in general, I don't come from like straight out of university. I, I started working in software, or started working in data science. Uh, I was a traditional engineer, um, like wrenches and wires sort of engineer. Uh, 
worked in a couple of factories as a process engineer and a, an R&D, R&D design engineer in, in multiple different industries. And then because I'm so lazy, uh, I, I, I tried automating parts of my job that I found monotonous. And that led me down a path of learning about statistics and learning about applied ML. I had no idea how the stuff worked. I uh, didn't know like how a linear regression works. I was just using it because through trial and error, figuring out, okay, how do I optimize this? Okay, they, they say that there's this sort of brute forced approach to an optimization problem. All right, I'm going to look at some code, bought some books, read through them, didn't understand the theory, didn't really care. It was just working. And that eventually led me to a path of getting hired at a company where that was my full-time job was just applied ML. We didn't call it data science back then. It was just at the factory I worked at, it's called yield analysis. And a very small team of people trying to figure out mostly root cause analysis. So statistical evaluation of prior data uh, and drawing correlations saying, okay, this tool at this time in this chamber with this recipe and these you know, signal conditions caused this problem in processing of this silicon wafer. And we're, I'm going to drop a report. I'm going to create these visualizations, provide an evidence trail file and send that out and have some meetings and talk to people. And that, that transition to a role like that was something that has defined my career since I, since I got out of high school, actually, you know, joining the U S Navy right out of high school. Uh, I've always tried to put myself into places where I have no idea what I'm doing. And I feel like the dumbest person in the room. I, that fear motivates me uh, and makes me want to understand how stuff works and ask a lot of questions and talk to a lot of people. So it, you know, moving to that factory and, and doing that job, I made a lot of mistakes the first year. Uh, truly shocking levels of uh, of near misses, we should say. I'm like, oh, you know, we have this issue and we I think we have, you know, 80,000 parts affected in the, you know, in the processing line in the factory right now. We need to, we need to scrap the, this equipment, you know, this, this material and a wafer scrap event at a uh, semiconductor factory, uh, you're not talking about like, okay, it's $50,000 worth of product or uh, it's a couple hundred thousand, we'll recover from it. When you talk about scrap full line uh, in a a factory environment like that, it's tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, So yeah, it- it, Gotta get it right. You definitely have to get it right. You need checks and balances, you need validation, you need- it's not just you need a buddy to check your work. You need, right. you know, five people to validate independently what your conclusion was, and then it goes through council review. So it, I learned very quickly that I needed to really understand what these algorithms and these software packages. I needed to know how they worked because if there was an issue with how I was using it, and me being dumb and ignorant about how to properly do that. Uh, we're talking people's livelihood online, my own employment. It's a big deal. So uh, I got pretty good at that and established a a pretty sizable team at that company. 
and then decided to bounce off to the next unknown, you know, and, and did that a couple of times to different companies in this, this data, you know, now that people are calling it data science, machine learning, you know, engineering. Uh, but I was still more on the applied data science side, just trying to solve a problem with these algorithms that I was over time getting more familiar with and understanding how to use them properly. Uh, and then moving into my my job that I had right before I was hired at Databricks for a field position, uh, that was more learning how to build production-capable ML at scale, where we had to build infrastructure systems that were customer-facing. So we built this massive recommendation engine, and that was you know REST API backed. I worked with some brilliant people at at the company and on my team and collaboratively we all work together with the business as well to build this system and we learned a lot uh, about okay we have a 20 millisecond budget to serve recommendations to 17.5 million people that are on multiple different platforms Uh, how do we make this work and how do we make it not not drift in a way that's going to burn us so that some other parts of that book later in the later chapters, I talk about stuff like drift monitoring and A-B testing and how to run experiments and how to constantly monitor. That's all stuff that, that I learned the hard way at that company. And then when I, when I moved from there to Databricks, working in the field, in post-sales, all you do as a post-sales engineer is work with different companies around the world. I've worked with with people that are just getting started on that path where they don't really know how to get to the first step in that 30 step process of doing production at scale ML. And they, I can give, you know, wisdom to them and teach them, Hey, here's the stuff to pay attention to. Here's the stuff to ignore. And, you know, the pursuit of simplicity is going to be good for you. And here's how to think through that. Uh, All the way from that level of customers to customers that are doing stuff like far more advanced than anything that I've ever personally done. And they just want to run it on Databricks. So it's seeing all of these different, you know, journeys of different companies and different teams that really informed a lot of the stuff that I, that I put in the book. And definitely one thing which even someone with kind of passing familiarity with with the world of, a, of an ML engineer, you come come away with the sense that these systems are complex, like putting ML into production and doing it like in a way that isn't just like a one-time event. Like that's that's a complex system that you're talking about there. I'm kind of curious since you've written this book and you spend a lot of time thinking about how the pieces fit together, what's a good mental model of thinking about this complex system? Is there a way to to make it simpler, as, as you were just saying? I think a lot of people, when they think of simplicity with MLOps, think about tools first. And I don't think that's a problem per se. I think in, in the world of SaaS companies, uh, like both of our companies are, you know, build tools for this purpose. Yep. And I think from a from an ecosystem of a a SaaS vendor, focusing on simplicity of tools and making sure that 
APIs are simple to use and it's easier to use those APIs than it is to not use those APIs. That, that sort of thinking is, is what's needed. It's what's happened in many different software disciplines over the last 40, 50 years. And it becomes more approachable and manageable for teams. You don't have to be a savant to, you know, take 30 different, you know, disparate tools and glue them all together with custom code and create this, you know, bespoke framework that works in your company's ecosystem and have a team of engineers maintaining it. It's kind of ridiculous uh, to expect every company to do that. So the the people that are building the tools are making them simpler and that, that simplifies the ML ops process or ML engineering process. But then from a team, from an applied ML perspective, like a team that's trying to solve a business problem, there's no one size fits all approach. It really depends on what problem you're trying to solve, what the actual business need is. And where I see teams really struggle who are sort of nascent to, to you know, thinking about ML engineering or you know, production ML, they focus on the tech first and they're like, okay, here's some tools that we, we have to use. We need to have this in our tech stack. How do we fit this problem that the business told us to solve into this particular stack that we have. And that can create unnecessary complexity. Uh, sometimes the team's not experienced enough to know. I mean, I, I would argue that no team is, ex, you know, air quote, experienced enough to know everything about data science and machine learning. I don't, I've never met anybody who is, and I certainly am not. It's just too broad of a, a topic, but there's a lot of teams that, they learn something from, say, how they they got exposed to data science. They do some Kaggle competitions. They see, okay, who, who's winning these competitions on this type of data set? What tools are they using? And sometimes there's great examples for stuff like that, or they're the coding boot camp that they went to for data science. They learn these, these approaches that work for that one use case. But in the real world, when you're talking about production ML, what you want to do is you don't, you're not trying to build something for maximizing a competition score. Uh, nobody cares. Your business doesn't care. You shouldn't care. It, it's irrelevant. What you should be building for, and the mentality that I try to tell people and, and I try to do is you build for production by understanding that this is something that you're going to have to maintain for potentially years. And that means you're maintaining this. Like before we started the recording, we were talking about a, a software package that just got released last night that broke a bunch of stuff. Um, that is going to happen to your ML project. Uh, somebody's going to release a package. A new version of Pandas is going to drop or NumPy or some core Python language uh, functionality is going to be hot fixed or you know, version is going to be deprecated and you can't even download it from PyPy anymore. Um, when that happens, you need to update your code and fix it in production. So th the simpler that your approach is, the cheaper is it, it's going to be not just to run it, but also to maintain it. Because uh, if you're successful with your first two, three, four ML products that you're releasing as a service within your company, 
guess what? The business is going to come knocking on your door and asking for the next seven. While you're building those next seven, you still have to maintain those first four because that's what is making money for the company or is you know, saving people a lot of time and effort. And if those are unstable and flaky, uh, all your time is going to be spent is maintaining some unnecessarily complex setup that you have uh, configured. So th- that's the design pattern that I try to explain to people is, you know, develop the simplest thing that you possibly can do. And I talk about it in the book a lot about and mentioned about, hey, if you can solve it with SQL, solve it with SQL. If it's a, if something you can schedule as a cron job that just executes DML statements to provide a, a heuristic prediction uh, or decision, do that. I, I've I've released dozens of production air quote data science solutions where all it is is clever windowing functions that aggregate data based on some some set of keys and provides insight to a business unit. And the, the funny thing is, is sometimes those projects, the business loves more than the super complex deep learning stuff. You know, people, it's not that people are afraid of deep learning. I, I hear people talk about it all the time, like, oh, it's a black box. Like, well, yeah, most supervised learning is, is a relatively black box-ish type thing. Uh, you know, you can use SHAP and you can use Lime and explainers to to drive insight, but that's, this doesn't explain how the optimization occurred and you know it, but data scientists get a real big and ml engineers we get excited about using complex tech because it's cool you know you're learning this this new api and you're building something that's incredibly complex and it just feels good when you see that finally run to completion and provide good score results you're like wow this is great oh i can but if i change this one thing and, and if i if I take these four features and augment them with these other 10 features and I create the, you know, this, this more complex feature vector, I can get, you know, 0.2%, you know, better F1 score. And what, like that path of, of trying to pursue excellence in prediction and, you know, making Are a model that seems like just just one part of the, like the whole system right right but as you're doing that you're making for a you know 0. 0.2 0.3 maybe one percent gain you're increasing the complexity of your system by a thousand percent there's so many more moving pieces that can break what happens with that feature augmentation or feature engineering stage that you're doing when one of those features changes which changes the distribution in a compounding way for the interacted feature. And now the model just completely goes belly up. Uh, you you in basically created a drift problem uh, over time and made something that's unmaintainable. So I really try to tell people, like, hey, start as simple as possible. And the book goes through that. SQL, if you can, you know, if you have to do some sort of classification task, Logistic regression is great. Uh, it's it's an awesome approach, and people have been using it for many, many, many years. Uh, some very big production ML uh, that I've seen at very big companies, they run on stuff like that. 
right? because it's simple and explainable and interpretable uh, and or use stuff like decision trees generate that heuristic if else statement for you uh, it's inherently explainable you can print it out and show it to a business person they'll be like oh that's what that model does it's it's just a condition it's like oh if it if it's above Either that this, makes then this. complete sense or it makes no sense <laughs> yes yeah and you could tell really quick like yeah. oh yeah this is garbage or hey this this is pretty good and I tell people to add complexity when you need to add complexity. And of course, there's certain use cases that uh, I don't recommend the Luddite approach that some, I've heard some people tout. Of like, well, you know, machine vision can be done with OpenCV and and uh, and Pillow, and you can can use you know vector operations on the matrix of the image. It's like, yeah, you can, but if you've ever written code like that of like how people were doing, you know, image manipulation or, you know, image similarity through, you know, pillowing functions back in the nineties or in the early two thousands, you realize, Hey, TensorFlow or PyTorch is it's designed for this. Like just, just use the right tool for the job. Like, mm -hmm. Do you want to maintain 30 lines of code or 30,000 lines of code? I think the tension there somehow is that this field of ML engineering, I mean, put my cards on the table, like I'm relatively new to this. So it's definitely not something I've been doing for many years and have lots of experience with, but it, from what I see around me it, it, it and, and, and read and so on, it feels like it's a new field, right? So there's a lot of complexity that probably 10 years from now will not exist because we've all agreed on some standards and some best practices. And there are some like, libraries which get most of the things correct and all of this and so to kind of yeah to, to aim from to aim for simplicity like it can be hard in this in in, in an environment or, or a context where things are changing so much and there's a lot of flux um, and so on so if you don't have the experience and you haven't you know like all of the the things which contributed to your book that if you haven't had those learning experiences it's possibly a bit hard to make sense or or make the right judgment calls in in that environment if that makes sense yeah i mean definitely and 100 percent. 10 years from now our talk today will probably be irrelevant because people will be like wait a minute like this is the tool stack that people use to do right. this you know if we talk about bi for for instance, um, 15, 20 years ago, BI tools were uh, Microsoft Excel. Uh, they had, you had if for enterprises, you had some tooling that would generate, you know, SVG graphics based on a very limited data set. And the comparison of how that was done, how you would generate a report then in say 2002 versus 20, <laughs> 2022, look at what it, it's like when you open up Tableau and connect to a cloud-based RD, RDBMS system or to a data lake. And you can generate some very sophisticated, uh, very beautiful you know, JavaScript-based visualizations that are dynamic and animated. And you know, it, it becomes so simple to do that whereas before it was not pleasant to build even a, a, a not so terribly nice to look at 
right. you know, static visualization, like a crystal report. Uh, I know a lot of developer friends who used to do that back in the day and they hated it. Um, but for tooling and ML ops and ML engineering, it's going to evolve to a way where 80 to 85% of all use cases, it's going to be a standard. Like, hey, we have some sort of use case that's ubiquitous in industry. Like, a lot of people do churn prediction for e-commerce or any anytime you have customers, you, you either do or should have a churn model that identifies customers that you should be reaching out to or identifying whether your business is about to go the way of the dinosaurs. And those models are so common. And when you look at, if you talk to a hundred different companies that are running them, the code almost looks like they copied it from each other. Yeah, sure. The naming is, is slightly different, but people are using the same sorts of families of algorithms. They're running it at a, a similar periodicity. They're evaluating it in a very similar way. So it starts to define this pattern of, hey, this, this is how churn is, is looked at. Uh, fraud detection in banking is also somewhat similar. I mean, everybody uses different features. They collect different data about their customers. But at the end of the day, they're all using the same similar family of models with some nuanced differences. But But the architecture and pipeline of, hey, we land the data in X system, we load it up, we create some features, we do some hyperparameter tuning on the model on a restricted space uh, based on prior runs that we've done. We then you know, define uh, what our validation is going to be. We, we run that cross-validation. We store the, the metric results. We store the hyperparameters that were used uh, in a recorded system. Then we package this up and deploy this model. So that that general architecture for sort of batch serving and also for real-time serving of a, a single monolithic pipeline, it's repeatable. It's, as you said, it, there's almost, there's sort of standards being developed around that. Where it's gonna always be a little bit tricky to, to solve for tool vendors is that 15% edge case. And that's why some of the parts of the book, I actually expose how systems would be built with code examples and demonstrations Um, that, yeah, there's tools out there that do that stuff, but to understand how to build something custom that might be a little bit outside the norm and you might have to, you know, write something yourself, understanding how to how to properly glue those those components together and uh, use stuff that's out there in the open source if you can, because you really don't want to write stuff from scratch for most things in ML engineering. It's just too, there'd be too much work. Um, yeah, it's kind of where I see the, the industry going is trying to solve for that 85%, the 15%. There's going to have to be practitioners out there that understand how to build it separate components for those bespoke uh, implementations and it'll be a chase for for the industry of tooling vendors to try to go after that 15% pie 
because some of those use cases are probably some of the most expensive things. Uh, Yeah. Like I've worked with some, some companies at Databricks in the field that before I had worked at Databricks, I didn't understand or didn't, I had zero knowledge that people, that humans were trying to do these sorts of things. It's like, you're ingesting what data? Like you're scraping how many billions of websites every day in, and how many VMs are you turning on to do this? And you start seeing the scope and scale of, of what some companies are doing. And then you look at the size of a computing cluster that they're using to train a model. And you realize that like, Hey, that at my, my company, you know, eight years ago, we thought we had a really big on-prem data center uh, with all of these racks, you know, I'd walk down in there, you know, a couple of times a week uh, to go talk to somebody in IT and just be amazed at all the blinking lights and, and just how many rows and rows and rows of machines. And then you talk to this customer and see their use case and you're like, hey, this is this is one project. You're using 10,000 VMs uh, with 64 cores each. Like, what is this? How many how many petabytes of of data are you churning through? And it's it's complex and chasing down patterns for that because because everything changes when you're dealing with the difference between you know a lot of people talk about ML on on single machine. Like yeah, I can build a model on my laptop, and I can use you know subset of training data, and it it'll generally work. You know, you want the model to generalize, not over, you know overfit. So you don't need it. Usually, need a ton of data. But there's use cases out there where feeding more training data is the answer. You know, NLP it, it needs a lot of examples in order to uh, calculate optimizations. Recommendation engines, the more data, the better. Always. Uh, Computer vision, you know, image classification, you need a lot of data in order to build one from scratch uh, and not do transfer learning. So those those use cases, uh, it's not something that you can run on a laptop, but it's also not what most people classify as big data. Uh, a lot of our uh, customers at Databricks are like, yeah, we got big data. And like, okay, how much... How much uh, data is in S3 uh, for this data set? And they're like, oh, it's huge. It's huge. It's 11 terabytes of data. I'm like, yeah, that's not even remotely large. And they're like, what? Well, what data sets have you seen that are bigger? I'm like, I can't tell you who has you know, a lot of data, but I can tell you I've seen numbers that are in the hundreds of petabytes sitting on object store. Uh, that's, that's extreme data. And if you need that as part of, you know, nobody uses that amount of data for a training set really, but uh, unless you're, you're Google or maybe Meta. Uh, but for these massive use cases where you're processing that amount of data, it's not so much the, the code architecture that becomes the limiting point, it's <coughs> the actual deployment architecture. You need... You need to think about uh, partitioning strategies and how do you distribute data and what's the most efficient way of, of serializing, deserializing any object that's created in a distributed system. It becomes rather complex and very, I don't think many vendors are going to go after those use cases as a generic solution. 
there's just not enough people doing it to make it economically viable for them to pursue that. Right, right. So th- there's kind of a trend where um, kind of experts in their fields are encouraged to to use these new tools, which exist in the ML world, deep learning and so on, as a way of enhancing what they do in, the, in their original fields. And I think, yeah, certainly they're not going to be uh, working on some of these, like the 10 to 15% of, of, of what's going on. But quite soon, people who are moving and, and kind of trying to, to do applied ML on some kind of case, which is important to them in, in their particular field, they'll, they will hit this wall of, of complexity of dealing with a lot of these problems around putting things in, into production. I'm interested on your take on whether it's it's even realistic to encourage people to, to deal with the whole story, I guess. Or, or another way of, of phrasing the question would be maybe like, how small can a production ML team be? Depends on what their consumption is. So... If you had asked me this question five years ago, of like, oh, what do you think about that term, citizen data scientist? I was one of those people that was like, I hate that term. Like, data science can't, it's not something you can just, you know, throw data into. I've come around and I've I've worked with teams that it may be people that have the job title data scientists, and but they they don't know how any of the algorithms work under the covers. They they certainly don't know the mathematics behind it, um, but they can solve problems and they're they're willing to learn, they're willing to fail and learn from those failures. And they're open to that pursuit of simplicity and just solving a problem. And I think setting aside job titles, which I think that the hubris that is attached to that is pretty obnoxious and I find it rather off-putting, but we're all humans. And if we're working for a company, we're trying to solve problems. Uh, and that's that's all a data scientist or ML engineer is doing. Um, but if you're trying to build something where you have a data set, you have a problem, you understand the business need, and you just need predictions on some some problem set to be generated once a week, and it can be read from a BI tool like Tableau or Power BI to just visualize those predictions. And you're trying to say, okay, what is what do we think our sales are going to be for the next three weeks on different products? Now, if your intended audience are people that are making informed decisions about the business and they just need to have, they need just a gauge on, hey, do we think things are going well or are they significantly different from what we expected them to be? Then a team of two people or even one person can build that. And it's not that challenging to get something that's, you know, kind of correct. That's perfectly fine. Contrast that exact use case where you're predicting uh, something like inventory consumption of each product that your company sells in geographic regions around the world. And then the values that are coming out of those predictions are being sent to your factory line to do capacity optimization models of, hey, we're going to, because of this forecasted data, 
we're going to physically shut down tools and put them into maintenance mode because we don't think we're like the demand is going to be there. So we can, we can, you know, allow 30 people to go on vacation. And we, when you start consuming the output of a model in such a way that reality is affected, like physical things are being affected, human lives are being touched. uh, And there's, there's skin in the game, as I like to say. There's money on the table. Uh, then it's a different story. What happens if that forecast is 50% off? How long is that is that project going to stay running? Probably not that long. Maybe another couple of weeks before people get really angry. Uh, how long is that team going to be employed if the company ends up making some decisions based on their predictions that causes a 20, $30 million loss. Uh, I've seen entire teams get shown the door in an afternoon for a result like that. Uh, it's pretty scary. But for those sorts of use cases where there's a lot riding on it, even if the implementation isn't that complex, you're going to need a, a team of not like, oh, go hire ML engineers. That's not the answer. Uh, you're not going to afford them anyway. Uh, they get paid a lot of money uh, if they really know what they're doing. Um, but you you can make something like that happen with a cross-functional team of two people from the business that are sort of on loan to work with the team for that project, or maybe they're, they're permanent additions to that. Give them a job title of analyst. It, whatever it happens to be like they're analyzing the result of this, this product that you're building. They're making sure that it's meeting the business need and they're the final say on if there's a change that needs to be made. And you get people that uh, have a background in data science statistics that can, can really understand the aspects of the data and be able to detect potential issues. And then you need not necessarily ML engineers, but, if you're working in a company that's got all of this infrastructure and you're ingesting data, you have software engineers. Um, have two or three of them uh, work on that team. They're the ones that are working with the data scientists, making sure that the code works correctly, make sure that any custom functionality as part of that ML pipeline has proper unit testing, has a CI CD system set up around it, that you've got you know, proper QA, like you're, you're running something in a staging environment where people can look at changes and test them well before it gets merged to production. Uh, so yeah, it's doable with a small team. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I've, I've been on those teams before where there's like six people. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's got a different skill set, And I actually seek out stuff like that with teams that I've built in the past is to look for people with different backgrounds uh, so they can all teach each other. Everybody learns, everybody grows. If you have uh, if you have a whole bunch of people that all have a similar background that can all kind of do the same thing, nobody's learning very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all of a sudden becomes more like a competition, uh, it, which is unhealthy. But if you take like a developer or two developers, a data engineer, two data scientists and an analyst, that team can can do that forecasting um, at extreme scale and keep it running. 
provided that they're yeah they know what they're doing i was going to ask you a little bit about the role of education there because depending on where someone's coming from they will have better well certainly more experience in in certain areas so whatever you know reading your book there are certain parts of it where you can see yeah obviously there's tremendous value in having a really good sense of like statistical intuition about what works and what doesn't and how to think about kind of distributions and, and all sorts of these things but a software engineer just like that probably wasn't part of their training at least if they came up from some kind of traditional background so mm -hmm. It seems like cross-functional is the way to, as in, don't expect your software engineer to know, to have great statistical intuition. That's kind of what you're saying, it seems. Yeah, it's it's not in their wheelhouse. If they want to learn it, great. Like, don't tell somebody like, hey, you can't work on this because you're a software engineer and software engineers don't deal with statistics. That's obnoxious. And I actually see companies do stuff like that. It's like, why would you do that? It's They're not a different species. They're a human being who's very intelligent. You hired them because they're very intelligent and they're very capable at what they do. They can learn other things. Um, so I never, in any team that I've been a part of or that I've led or, or organizations that I've advised uh, in my current or in my previous role, um, I always tell people that like, hey, get some some uh, professional diversity in this team and further on that get some cultural diversity as well uh it people don't sometimes don't think about that they think about job titles and they're like whoa we need to get a you know if we want to do cross-functional background you know we need to get a software engineer and a data engineer and some data scientists and uh, sometimes i've told people i'm like you need to get people from different backgrounds too you can't get a whole bunch of people that grew up in Manhattan in New York City or a bunch of people that grew up in, in Palo Alto and expect that they're going to have differing viewpoints. They grew up in the same, same environment. They matriculated through university at probably the same school. They didn't get exposed to different ways of thinking through things. Get people from different backgrounds, from different countries, from different cultural backgrounds. They will make a a much better product and that's been proven out i don't know how many times at in silicon valley of looking for that diverse global talent pool and picking people from from different backgrounds to put them together and they make magic happen same thing should be done in a data science team as well because i would argue that it's even more important for data science use cases because like software engineering is creative in the sense of you're solving logical problems in unique ways or, you know, there's a lot of, but there's a lot of disciplining and structure around that because you have to, it's, like, it's got to work. Yep. It either works or it doesn't work and it's got to work. So you need a lot of controls around that. Uh, data science and even some aspects of ML engineering, there's a lot of creativity in there. Sometimes you're going down a path that nobody's tread before. You have this unique idea of uh, how to do this thing with data or how to combine this feature engineering processing with this, this model architecture. So it's a very creative process and it's also a business focused process. A software engineer is building something for use by a client or internally at their company. And they're almost like a consultant that works within the company. They're, you're just delivering something that people are asking for and it has to meet these product requirements and 
and it just has to continue to work. Whereas data science is, hey, we have this problem we need to solve. Nobody knows how to solve it. If they did, they wouldn't be talking to you. And it's very creative and potentially frustrating because you're going to try 100 things and 99 of them are going to be wrong. Uh, Hopefully one of them is going to be correct. And you, you have to creatively do that. So the more diversity that you have in technical background as well as cultural background, uh, you just get different viewpoints on how to solve something. And I've always found those teams solve more interesting things faster and more reliably than a team of monocultured, mono job title, mono background individuals. Not to mention, I guess, like probably a more, yeah, diverse team is probably going to going to help you spot some of those edge cases and and, and things and like failure modes that a, a monoculture team just it wouldn't occur to them to think of um yeah along the way yes definitely uh yeah if you get enough similar people together working on something it almost becomes like a hive mind it's really weird I, i've seen it before I've, I've actually been in those teams before it's very surreal like, that nobody objects to anything. Um, people just conform to whoever the loudest voice in the room is. And it it's not healthy. <laughs> it, it doesn't work very well. You don't build really good products or you know solve really interesting things. People just conform. Uh, and I think that's human nature. If you're around people that are very similar to you, it's almost like a psychological projection that you are them in in some way. Whereas if you have an incredibly diverse, but also open and uh, collaborative environment of people from different backgrounds that, you know, you grew up in a different part of the world. You, you, your first language that you spoke was a different language. It's a, a different way of thinking through the existence and reality of, of life that gives you a different perspective and having a little bit of contention with viewpoints is what creates great software, great, great product. Uh, and yeah, I always seek that out and I always recommend that others seek that out. I think someone who, who comes to your book, you know, it's a technical book for Manning. Like it has this title machine learning engineering in action. They might be surprised to when they find that something like one third or maybe as much as half of the book is about like organizational and non-technical things. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about, yeah, w- where you come from? I, I'm totally on board with, yeah, with that decision, but yeah, it might be seen as, as surprising. Yeah, that was something that I didn't think was going to fly at Manning either because I, I've, I've got dozens of Manning books. They're all technical. They're they write really good books. Like their authors are are great. They go through this this process of establishing this template of, hey, this is how we write these books. This is the structure. I went through that as well and but but it heads a little bit at the start. Um, but I pitched it to them and I said, hey, yeah, the technical aspects of data science work are important. But those books have been written so many times before. There's some great ones out there. And I listed off a bunch of them to them. I was like, here's something I have in my library. I've learned a lot from them. I think they're great. But in practice, 
in doing what I've been doing for the last decade of my life. Um, that's not the whole story. Uh, in fact, you can be, you can have such high technical excellence in data science and ML engineering and never get something that stays in production for more than a month. I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen it many times actually, uh, at both big and small companies, uh, talk to somebody, sit down, look at their code and you're just like in awe almost like how, how elegant it is and how well it solves the problem. And then you ask them like, well, how long has it been in production? They're like, Oh, they, they just told me to turn it off. Like, well, why, like, why is it getting turned off? And their response is, well, they don't, they don't think it's important. Like, ah, you didn't sell it to them. You didn't sell this idea to them. And, and they're like, well, can you work with me? Can you tell me how I can do that? And I'm like, no, that ship has sailed, man. Yeah. They're not emotionally invested in this. They just see this as some genius at their company sat in a closet in the back of the office space and built something amazing that they don't understand and they don't care about. This project could make your company a a 30% lift in revenue, but you're never going to find out because you didn't involve them from the start. So that's why that first yeah, it is somewhere between like a third and, and a half of the book is mostly focused on communicating to a technical audience how important, you know, sort of like product management skills are to a data science team, to a tech lead, to an ML engineer, to anybody that's working on that team. It It is not a job or a profession that it's not like software engineering where you're expected to take a list of requirements and build a prototype and demo that prototype and, and gather feedback in this back and forth sort of way. Like, Hey, we, we're going to release this new version. Can you please check it out? Data science isn't like that. It's too, there's too much at stake. There's, it costs too much and it's potentially too disruptive to the business to expect that something that's even it's potentially brilliant in implementation uh, and expertly executed is going to ever be adopted by the business unless they have skin in the game. Now you involve them early on in the process of planning stuff out and get them excited. You now have people that are going to bat for you to the executives saying, Hey, we really need this product or this project. And we're going to devote three of our people to work with the data science team and they're going to QA everything. They're going to give feedback. They're going to be the testers for this. They're also going to help, you know, we're going to, and then the, you get the backend data engineering team. They, they get involved and excited about it because they're like, wow, somebody's using our data for something cool. Yeah, we're going to devote one person 50% of the time to support the team with whatever they need. Oh, you need ETL written? Yeah, we'll do that for this project. You build a village around a project and you'd be amazed. I've seen just complete hot garbage of code like you look at it and you're like how is this running like how how is a computer actually processing this without just saying nope i'm not running this code but it, it's running in production there's a, a team of 40 people at even a you know mid-sized company everybody believes in it they're they're doing talks on it they're not showing code during the talks but you know they know how bad it is but the company believes in it. They're writing blog posts about it and it attracts 
greater talent to the company because ML engineers and data scientists see that and they're like, whoa, that company's doing something cool and they're putting ML first. Yeah, I want to work there. So it's it's a conscious decision. It's a smart decision for companies to do that and bringing in that that diverse outside talent of more experience to to work in that culture. It's transformative for a business. If you if a company can figure that out, that's how you leverage ML and a data science team. So that's why I wrote so much about that process because it's so critical for successful ML. Yeah, not really covered in so many places, I would say. So it's definitely like a useful addition, I would say. If someone from Manning is listening, I appreciate <laughs> Do you have any kind of, I guess there's a lot of new entrants to this field and space. Do you have any kind of early-ish career advice for people who are trying to be more competent, more productive with the, this kind of the whole story of machine learning engineering? What's the, either in the technical side or in the kind of that organizational communication side? The organization communication side, I would say, uh, adopt Einstein's methodology. You give it an hour to solve a problem, take 55 minutes to ask questions, be that person who's asking the questions and listening and listen to people who others might dismiss uh, at a company. If you're new to a company uh, and you know that like, oh, I got to do this, you know, this project for the ops department. Well, you know, everybody told me to, to not talk to marketing and not talk to sales, but I'm going to go see if I can, you know, talk to them and see what they know about this product. The more people you learn to talk to and listen to and distill their, their needs and their opinions and their viewpoints into a, a cogent, cohesive project plan, the better off you're going to be. Um, so that's a, a big piece of advice. Just talk to people and listen. Uh, and ask way more questions to the point of annoying people uh, is what I recommend for an ML project and and keep it up as well. Like, don't just do a one-off discussion and make sure that you're capturing their ideas uh, and they approve of how you're capturing the, their ideas. Uh, and then from a technical side, I'd say don't skimp on software development skill set. Uh, you don't have to know how to build a like framework code or infrastructure. You don't have to know how to build ZenML, uh, you know, the open source toolkit as a data scientist. You should not, you, sh you shouldn't be that good of a developer uh, as a data scientist unless, because if you are, then go do software engineering. You're probably going to make more money in the long run. And it's, it's going to be a different experience if you're already that skilled in that, unless you really want to do data science work. Um, but you should be competent enough to write code that doesn't break and that is testable and know how to debug something pretty efficiently uh, and know how to be able to read code as though you're reading your, your native language. That's a skill that's very important, particularly when you move from that first position and go to your second job or your third job probably at a different company. Uh, if you want to, you know, start making more money, that's how you do it is move yep. from company to company. And your first, even your second job, you might not be expected to know a ton, but by that third or fourth or fifth job, when you're, you know, an L7 or an L8 as a data scientist in a company, you're expected to be able to 
look at a project's code in GitHub and just sort of understand how it works without having to run stuff, without having to look stuff up. You should be able to do a PR on somebody else's data science code and provide valuable feedback. You should be able to identify code smells of bad architecture and code and problematic structure. And all of that is you learn as you do. You learn from reading books, you learn from practicing. And then the, the third aspect that I recommend that, that people do is try to solve problems. And that doesn't mean try to solve a Kaggle competition or something like that. Those are valuable and there's a lot of great open source data sets out there, but you don't have to solve stuff with a computer to start learning, you know, how to do data science. A lot of data science is thinking through how to solve a problem. Uh, think about what the passions about that, it, I guess. Yeah. Communicating about it as well. But for, for problem solving in general, I always ask people when people have asked me that before, like, well, how do I get good at figuring out which algorithm to use and what data to use to solve this problem? Uh, Cause when you're working on a new project, people are usually like, Hey, here's the database or here's the data lake. And you're like, okay, which of these 83,900, you know, columns of data across 16,000 tables am I going to use for, to solve this problem? Uh, being able to distill a problem and understand what data to use. It's just general thinking, like critical thinking skills and problem solving skills. So I always ask people what their passion is and whatever their passion is, what do they do on the weekend? Um, are they really into like fixing up old cars? Well, see if you can disassemble the engine in your head without physically looking at it and see if you can diagnose what, you know, what problem might, might be if you observe this, you start asking questions of them or have them just do those exercises of thinking through like, Hey, how does this thing that I that I engage with in my off time, how does it actually work or why does it work the way it does? And those thought exercises, uh, I found when I've done that mentoring tech technique with people in the past, they've actually come back to me six months later and said, you know, those, those tasks that you had me do back then uh, about thinking through my, my framing of my photography of, of like my nature and wildlife photography that I do on the weekends, that's actually helped me in you know thinking through some of the problems that the business comes to us with i'm like yeah i know that's why i i mentioned that to you like you can train your brain to to observe reality in a way that it's sort of like a, solving a problem in whatever task that you're doing you know maybe you're mowing a massive lawn on the weekend well try to think through what the most optimal path is to, to go through your yard where you're, you're you're not discharging dead grass in clumps on the on the yard. What is that pattern? Think through that, and that those approaches. Um, that's what a lot of data science work is really is solving problems that are very ambiguous. Um, a lot of software engineering is like that as well. It's so, those are my three tips <laughs> to new people. Very nice. So we usually end with a couple of uh, quickish questions or as, as short or as long as you'd like. So the first, what would be a quick win that someone can add to 
make their productionizing of models or their project more robust? More robust, quick win. Um, I'm a fan of your guys' product, actually. Uh, use something like that. Uh, if you have the ability to, you know, template out and and introduce, you know, model provenance and tracking and, you know, understanding how to actually construct pipelines in a way that you can, you can reproduce the code and execute arbitrary places in it, you know, that's probably the, the quickest win and building it from scratch sucks. So it, there's open source tooling out there. Definitely use that. And what will be one part of putting a model in production that you feel needs needs to be given more attention by toolmakers in the space that are something that's, that's forgotten or not really being handled at the moment? I think people are working on it, but it's the thing that burned me the most building like production ML is drift monitoring and not just drift monitoring. A lot of people are talking about that now and there's a lot of really cool open source products that are, that are addressing this right now. But the question that every serious data science tech lead should be very afraid of is when your CTO or your CIO or your CEO comes down to your desk and says, Hey, how much, how much money did that model make us this last quarter? You know, I just got the bill for the, the cloud costs based on this tag. So it cost us $180,000 to run this for three months. Can you tell me how much that made me? If you don't have that attribution set up before you went into production, you're, you are totally screwed. Uh, that is a, a monumental scramble of work of trying to do post hoc analysis on something that you probably didn't have cohorts set up to even do that measurement. You didn't have long running AB testing with some sort of holdout. And because that data doesn't exist, you're going to have to do some number fudging to try to answer that. Because most people aren't going to say, hey, boss, uh, I have no idea how much this thing made us. Um, you're going to come up with some number. If they fact check you later on, they find out that you made something up, uh, time to update your resume and maybe change your, uh, your field of, of profession. So yeah, that was something that I learned the hard way. I was the one who said, I have no idea. Um, but I'm going to create a way to find out and, you know, stick with me. Luckily, the, the person who was asking that question was understanding enough to say, let's work together on this. And we came up with a, a plan of how to do that for the, the use case that we needed. Uh, but it, it's not trivial and it's very custom to the business. But I think that tooling makers are going to get there. Uh, probably within the next five years of creating a framework to do this exact thing. It's just not a lot of people are talking about it right now, but everybody who's serious about ML, they do it. You have to do it.
Yeah, I mean, it, the, from the way you described it, it sounds almost like a kind of a behavioral or a kind of an all-encompassing thing that you need to, to kind of have around the edges of what you're doing. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that would be great if there was a, a tool that could help you think through that um, for sure. Well, great. Thank you very much for coming on. And yeah, everyone who's listening, I hope will go and, and read your book uh, slowly and digest all of the, the many lessons and things in there. Yeah, I, I certainly am going to continue doing that myself. Awesome. It was an absolute pleasure. And thanks. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Uh, this was really fun. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people. And of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast and zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.